Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. Eight number one hits, 26 top 10 hits in pop, country, and gospel, 70 million records sold, ranked in Billboard's top 50 most played artists of the past 50 years, five-time Grammy winner and a Grammy Hall of Fame inductee, and he won an Oscar as well. But beyond all the stellar stats of an amazing career is a man I came to like very much over the time we talked, and I think you will too. Here's our talk with B.J. Thomas. I like to do uh, research quite a bit uh, when I start talking to someone, uh, and Mm -hmm. uh, I must say, I had some surprises. One of the surprises I had is that you were really wanted to be an R&B singer. You know, by the time I was 12 years old, I was totally into Bobby Bland and uh, Little Junior Parker and, you know, of course, Ray Charles and Jackie Wilson. And, uh, and you know, I loved Ricky Nelson. And, of course, there was Elvis and everything. But uh, uh, I really loved these guys because it just seemed like uh, their magic was that they seemed to believe everything they were singing. And that, to me, was the, oh, that's the way to go about this, you know, because I've never been one to just hit the notes and, uh, you know, just punch the buttons. But I always tried to sing with feeling and to transmit a feeling that, uh, um, that uh, there were emotions there that I was having when I was singing. And, and really, the black entertainers were the greatest entertainers of my time, and they were doing it as well or better than, than anyone. And I could see that where it was more fun for me and interesting was to really believe it and to try to transmit that emotion to who might ever be listening. Yeah, I heard that you actually toured with James Brown. Yeah. My first record was uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. It was an old Hank Williams thing. And our version, we had a big horn session and everything in, in our band, The Triumphs. And, uh, you know, our version for its time, it, it, you know, it, okay, it's a, it seems like a country thing now, but for our time in 65, it was more of an R&B uh, vocal, and it was more of an R&B thing, and so I was considered uh, uh, to be a black singer when uh, I first kind of hit the public and my that first record started taking off. So my first gig was with James Brown, and then I worked with uh, Jackie Wilson and Johnny Mathis and... Uh, I worked, uh, you know, two or three years with Percy Sledge and Albert King and Freddie King and, and all these great R&B singers. And uh, it was like a really a dream come true. And you were on the top 40 at the time, you know, side by side with the Beatles and Motown and all <laughs> that stuff. Right. And, how did I, that happen? you know, I can't remember how I thought about it then, except I love, love the record. And I do think it had a whole lot of feeling. I mean, you were very believable as being lo- so lonesome you could cry. You know, I've kind of tried to do that down through my career to make sure that I, that I could that people could feel like they could believe what I was I was singing. So in that respect, I had to turn down a lot of songs that I didn't feel like I could connect with and I, I couldn't, it wouldn't be any fun to sing. And um, so, you know, I picked and choose to, uh, pretty good. But yeah, how that song made it through in that, that great uh, generation of music is um, the only thing I can think of was the feeling. And I think that people could feel the, the, the true feelings in, in my music. And that's how I competed. You know, I never was number one 
in in my generation but you know i was right in the middle there and i was i was competitive and uh, i've always been proud of that well yeah it was a top 10 record i mean 1966 yeah, was, right yeah it was a gold record yeah yeah. Now I know one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is raindrops because it's the 50th anniversary, but I want to talk about some of these other hits that you had at the same time. Your, your next big hit was Hooked on a Feeling. I know people come to, to, to see me to hear raindrops, but I get the most response to Hooked on a Feeling than any of my music. Now, what did you think of the cover version? I thought Blue Swede was the one who did an Uga Chaka Uga right at the beginning, Yeah. which I thought yeah. was hilarious. I don't know what the hell it had to do with Hooked on a Feeling. Um, you know, I never really had any bad feelings about it. In my heart of hearts, I think um, they covered my record a little quick. I mean, it was only two and a half, three years after my hit that they covered it. But you can't deny that it was a great production. The Uga Chugga thing really worked, and uh, the guys sang it well. And it was a great record, and, uh, you know, it went it went higher than mine. Mine went to five and uh, sold a few million copies. And I don't know what they were sold, but they had a number one record. And I didn't know that. But here's what I found out today. They weren't the first to do that song with the Uga Chaka. Oh, really? Jonathan King, who did Everyone's Gone to the Moon, did Uga Chaka before they did Uga Chaka. Well, you know... Jonathan King and uh, there was a, a couple of other guys in that group that Jonathan King was a part of. They covered all my records. Is that right? They they preyed on my records uh, in in the European market. So I knew, and then I knew it was the same group of guys that uh, he had done hooked on a feeling. But I didn't realize that he had done that before Blue Swede, but. They, um, you know, it was um, industry practice back then, uh, maybe to cover the records uh, in, in Europe. So, hey, they were just trying to do the best they could. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had it. You had the original, so. You know, the same thing happened to me in Australia. You know, uh, Johnny Farnham covered, uh, you know, Raindrops. And, uh, and that, that, uh, that offended me a little bit because my record was actually out there. I didn't respect that uh, uh, very much, but, uh, you know, on the whole, I, I never had any two negative feelings about Blue Swede and my, Mark James, the guy that wrote the song, made a lot of money and it was all good, really. That's right. Now, Raindrops, of course, is the huge, huge hit. Number one for four weeks. Uh, won all kinds of awards, Grammys, Oscars. How did you make your way to that song, or how did that song make its way to you? Well, I, I was I was with Scepter Records, and uh, Mr. Backrack owned a piece of Scepter. Scepter was Scepter Wand, and uh, Mr. Backrack, of course, was the the producer songwriter for Dion Warwick, and that was one of that was Scepter's big uh, artist. And uh, I had seen him various times in the office in New York after, of course, I signed with him. I had been with him a couple of years. And uh, after I had uh, hooked on a feeling, uh, the, the Florence Greenberg, the lady that owned the label, Scepter Records, she told me, I, if you move up to New York, I think I can get you a session with uh, Burt Backrack and Hal David, and he can write you a song. And and let's get that working. And so I thought, yeah, that sounds great. And I really, I hated to leave Memphis because I was having a great time there and I loved it there, but I knew I could come back uh, whenever. And so I did. I'm, Gloria, Gloria and I had just been married, but we moved up to, to New York City and I had been working with Mr. Backrack for a couple of months. 
uh, looking for material and uh, uh, I'd go by his apartment and we'd, we'd go through music and they were trying to write something for me and nothing uh, was really happening. And then kind of the bicycle scene came for, uh, for Butch Cassidy. And, uh, you know, I was lucky to get it. They had a few people they were thinking of doing it on. Uh, Dylan and uh, uh, they pitched it to Ray Stevens, my good friend Ray Stevens. But I was kind of there and I was selling records and I just had hooked on a feeling. So he gave me the shot. And, uh, you know, it was uh, one of those lucky, fortunate things, you know, and, I'm, and, you know, I've been so fortunate to have that song all these years and, you know, have it be a part of my repertoire and, and a part of my show. And, and uh, you know, I'll always remember flying out to California and uh, doing the bicycle scene and, uh, it had its drama because I had laryngitis when I got to California. I had been had three weeks of one-nighters I had done through the Midwest and my throat was shot. So I went to a doctor and he told me not to even speak for two weeks and, you know, the whole laryngitis story. But it, uh, you know, I was able to sing it a few times, uh, enough times to get, a, get the take that they wanted. Mr. Bacharach, he liked the way it sounded, the kind of gruff sound on the bicycle scene version. And, uh, you know, it worked out well. They won a couple of Academy Awards and, and all that. And we did re-record it six weeks after the, bi uh, the bicycle scene. And we recut it for the single. I saw the movie, of course, like a, who knows how many people. But I never realized it was a different version. And then I, I watched it yesterday. And I definitely heard it in your voice. But you know what? I think it worked for that scene. You know, it's it, it's almost like I was supposed to have laryngitis. You know, it it worked, and it was only it was a, only kind of a a very simple version with a guitar, banjo, and a stand-up bass. So it was a, a a very different kind of version. It wasn't trying to be like a record. It just worked out perfectly. I know when I rehearsed with Mr. Backrack the day before uh, the session for the bicycle scene. You know, I was thinking, oh man, I'm going to show up over there, and he's going, and I've got laryngitis, I can't get it out, and he's going to fire me, and whatever. And, and I thought, well, you know what? It's not going to be because I didn't show up. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to see what happens. And I went in, and we started rehearsing it, and I started singing it. And he he says in his book, he said he immediately realized that uh, I had laryngitis or I had a problem with my throat. But he said, you know, what sounded, he said, BJ was phrasing it right, exactly how he had written it. And so he, he liked it. And, you know, it, it was supposed to be that way. Yeah. Now, now, was that written for the movie or was it a case where they just thought, oh, this song would fit good with the movie? No, they wrote it, wrote it especially for the movie. They, okay. they had the bicycle scene. And they wanted a song there. And of course, they had some objections from Robert Redford. And, uh, you know, they were there. It was a great Western, but they were making what they felt like was an art film. And, uh, you know, Mr. Redford didn't want a pop song in his, in his movie, but he did finally get convinced and realize that, hey, it, it, it really works. But they, they wanted a silly, frivolous song, they said to Hal David. Of course, I've had many conversations with both of them about this song. And he said, you know, BJ, I don't, I don't write silly songs, but he said, I kept it simple. And, and really, the song has a very deep, uh, meaningful message. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it seemed to work. I mean, they didn't invent the movie song, but they, they in, in a big way, they, they kind of turned it into a, 
something that a lot of people then began to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they, of course, they did the Backrack and David, they did some James Bond themes and all that. So they were very close to inventing that whole process. Now, as far as the, the hit goes, um, apparently it wasn't a hit right out of the shoot, which is so surprising when you think of how well it did. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it had the quirky melody and the radio just would not play it came out in October and the movie didn't come out till the Christmas season of 69. And, and of course, once the movie came out, it kicked off the song and everything because the movie really was a brilliant, uh, was a great, a great movie. And, uh, but nobody played it. And, uh, you know, WABC said, uh, BJ's singing a wrong note in the first verse and we're not going to play the record. And uh, of course, Florence uh, Greenberg said, well, I guess Mr. Bacharach missed that. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there was, and it got, uh, it was reviewed in Life magazine, uh, the movie, and they said they hated the song and it was the worst song that Bacharach David had ever written. And, oh man, I was really uh, so disappointed when I read those things. But, you know, when the movie came out, that movie was just a great movie. It had everything going for it. The great, you know, the song, you know, the great, composer Burt Backrack and writer Hal David and that great movie so it it had to make it don't forget a great singer <laughs> well <laughs> per- perfect singer I can't imagine Dylan doing that song I think it was well, well you know fall, and the rain drops are falling on my head kind of thing <laughs> but you know they did uh, they have put us all as a group into the uh, Grammy Hall of Fame the uh, the record me and uh, Backrack and David. So there were, it was kind of the perfect meeting of, uh, of song and singer and composer and vehicle. And that, that doesn't happen that, that often. So it's a, a great thing. Now let's talk about your appearance on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. That was something. I, I, I saw uh, that this morning on YouTube. I felt bad for you. <laughs> Well, you know, and I, I and the thing about it was I, I had to do it at dress rehearsal. Uh, so by the time I got, the, you know, I couldn't, you know, hair dryers. I, I you know, I, by the time I did it for real, my hair was still wet and everything. And Mr. Sullivan was a wonderful guy, and you know, we hit it off. And I sang for him a, a lot of times for his, the charities he was involved with. He would plug me in and I would sing. And he was, he was really great to me and Gloria. But his son-in-law, Bob Precht, was the director. And he's the guy that came up, came up with that. And it could have been a good idea, but it was just, you know, they just had holes punched in the bottom of a bucket. And so it was really just like a faucet on, on my head. Yeah, I should explain that. It, basically, they dump water on him while he's singing the song. It's 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 hilarious. And then, yeah, and then at the end, you know, it's, it's raining. And, and when Mr. Sullivan walks over, well, it stops raining. Of course. We don't want to get Mr. Sullivan wet. But, uh, you know, it, it seemed like a good idea. And, you know, we're still talking about it. So, uh it's made a lasting impression. <laughs> Anyone wants to see this, it is on YouTube. So check it out. So after that, you didn't stop. I mean, rock and roll lullaby, great song. Uh, and then, Hey, won't you play? First of all, I was a DJ in the seventies and let me tell you, that was the longest title I ever had to say on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Another somebody done somebody wrong song. Hey, won't you play? Yeah, uh, yeah. there was a great song written by Chips Moment and Larry Butler. Larry Butler was the guy that did all the hits on Kenny Rogers. And uh, Chips uh, was a guitar player uh, and a, a great songwriter. 
and he played on all the Aretha Franklin things and eventually opened his own studio. And anyway, this was down the road. We had been cutting together. We'd cut Just Can't Help Believing and uh, uh, a lot of stuff, of course, hooked, hooked on a feeling. And uh, they had re, re, uh, changed. They were in Memphis and they moved from Memphis to Nashville. And that's where they were in 75. So I went down and uh, kind of hooked up with them again. And, uh, you know, it's one of those great songs. You always want these things you record to be hit records, but we could just tell after we cut it that, man, this has got to be a smash. And it, it, uh, it was a number one country, easy listening, and a number one pop and just a great song. Yeah, so that's number one country and pop. And one of the things I found very interesting looking at your career is that you are like the ultimate crossover artist, except that it wasn't the songs that really crossed over. It was you that crossed over. I mean, with that one exception, in other words, you had a slew of pop hits, then you had a, a slew of Christian hits and then country and in different eras. Yeah, yeah it was, I, I never really was a crossover uh, artist uh, I, country uh, radio resisted uh, my records for some reason i mean my first hit was i'm so lonesome i could cry which was you know hank williams so i don't yeah but there was a resistance there uh, to pop not so much now you know they're all trying to be pop now but somebody done somebody wrong song was the first song that country record really really played uh, uh, wide open and i did oh i had a thing called old-fashioned love and a couple of things after that 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 might have been on the pop chart for a minute. But uh, basically, I was a pop artist. But I did try to point toward uh, country music in the 80s. And, and we did have a, a few number one records country. And, you know, of course, I grew up with country music. And I've been very lucky that pop people consider me pop. And country people think of me as country. And gospel people think of me as gospel. So I've been, you know, that's I've great. Been very lucky. But, but after Hey Won't You Play, mid-70s, around that area, you quit the business? Is that accurate? Well, yeah, we, uh, you know, I kind of, Gloria and I sat down and <clears throat> even though I, uh, Wrong Song was the number one record in the, in the country, I was having some serious life problems. I was a drug addict and, and an alcoholic. And uh, so just being on the road and always, uh, you know, sometimes I'd be gone 300 days a year. So, wow. You know, it just, just got to tough. And so I sat down with Gloria and said, you know, I'm tired of chasing after and running after this stuff. And I said, look, I don't even want to do it anymore. So uh, so we just kind of took off and we kind of fell way back. And maybe I'd work 10, 15 times a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we adopted uh, the, this child. And then, you know, we Gloria got pregnant. We had another, another child. And we just, you know, kind of, I kind of spent my time with the family, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't too long before, you know, I was asked to make this gospel record. And I, I think it kind of got around it, it within the industry that um, obviously I, I was having my problems with drug and drugs and alcohol, but uh, there was a turnaround there. We'd had a spiritual awakening or whatever. So we were approached by uh, a gospel label to make a gospel record. And, uh, you know, I'd always, some gospel music. I might have a record called Mighty Clouds of Joy. And so I was real open to that music growing up in the South and, and loving that Southern that gospel music. So we made the, made this record and it became the first, uh, <clears throat> you know, platinum record in gospel history. And we actually had four platinum records. 
So we did that, and then you know we won some Grammys for that, and we, we got a lot of appreciation for that. Um, but I had my problems uh, within the the gospel community because they wanted me to not do any of my records, and they wanted me to maybe preach a little bit, you know, talk, just keep it re- religious, so to speak. And I, I never really have uh, been able to be a religious person, although I have a, I do have a faith in, in you know, Jesus. I believe what he, the example he set with his lifetime and the, what he taught about do unto others uh, as you would have them do unto you. And so I, I'm, I live by that. But uh, so I kind of bumped heads with the with the Christian audiences, uh, and they would they you know they would boo me off and really? and just do it was so it was tough. So at at one point, Gloria and I had another meeting. <laughs> we said that, you know I said you know I think I'm done with the with the gospel. I don't want to be a minister or a, or just a religious singer. Uh, so let's. Let's stop working those types of uh, venues and shows, and let's go back and see what's happening. So when we went back to just making regular music, it was kind of right at that explosion of country music, the urban cowboy and all that. Yeah, and early so 80s, I started yeah. Reco- I started recording with Pete Drake, and we, we had a, a few number ones, um, a number one country records, and that worked out well, too. Yeah, you had a nice run there in the early 80s for sure. Yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, I saw a recording that you did in your home with a love him down in Shreveport. Yeah. yeah. I've got to tell you, I thought that was terrific. I know, I know it's an old song, but I never knew it until I heard you sing it. But yeah, it's a, it, it makes a, a, a great statement. It is kind of how I feel about it, but you know, I, I just don't, I don't, uh, I don't want to get too deep into the philosophy of religion and, and that kind of thing, because I don't want to offend anyone. But, I, you know, I think it all comes down to a personal situation. It was how, how do you treat yourself? And, and uh, you know, if you can treat yourself right, well, then you can treat other people right. And anyway, it turns into kind of a personal thing, and it never was a religious uh, thing for me. But thanks, yeah, I just did that song for uh, Tim Wright and the Community of Grace Church in Phoenix. He is my pastor, and... Uh, that's my church, and so I just do just about anything they want me to. Now, is that a single? No, it's not. It's not a single. I just did it for him. You know, it's like the longevity of my career and everything, and then my age and everything. It's it's not easy at first, but you have to deal with be, being an older artist. You have to deal with the fact that not everyone. Uh, not all the writers are thinking about you and wanting to write BJ a song. You know? So you, it, the situation becomes uh, different. Uh, my performance and my recording is not so much for radio and for hit records because, you know, because if they're not going to play James Taylor or Paul McCartney, they're probably not going to play me. Uh, so it becomes a kind of a different exercise. And, and I am going into muscle shows as soon as we get out of this pandemic. And, and record some new things. And that'll probably be mainly online, that way of uh, getting it out. Well, as far as an older artist go, let me tell you, on that song, um, which was the first of your music I've heard in quite a while, you sound every bit as good <laughs> as you ever did. Well, I, I appreciate that. Maybe, maybe we'll take a look at that and see if maybe we should uh, make that a little more uh, available uh, online. But I appreciate that. You know, I, I stay as healthy as I can. I think my 
you know, the, the, the months that here we've been uh, quarantined, Gloria and I together for, you know, going on six months. So I'm a little out of shape, but um, nah. I, I still feel good. And, I'm, and I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> so I told you some things surprised me. Okay. And uh, one of the other things that surprised me about you, and if you don't want to talk about this, cool. No, that's but, but I checked your Twitter feed and you, your politics are not what I would expect it to be. And that for me was no. a pleasant surprise. Well, I appreciate that. I'm pretty open to people. I'm, o- I'm open to uh, all kinds of music. Uh, I'm open to all kinds of people. You know, as, as a kid, I never thought I would uh, be as open as I, as I am because from the South, I was kind of taught a certain way uh, how to think. But, you know, it was really... Uh, early in my lifetime, when I was just a kid, 10, 11 years old, I realized that uh, all this talk about people being better than other people didn't make it because the people that they were saying had this prejudice against, they were the, the great musicians and singers that I, began, I idolized. And I, I could see that, well, there's nothing inferior about this person. And certainly as you grow older, you, know, you, you realize someone's color is not, makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. So, you know, I'm, I'm very open to, you know, I love, I love black people. I love, I love Mexican people. I have, a, I have an Asian daughter, a, a daughter that was born in Seoul, Korea. Uh, so, you know, I'm very open in, in that, in that way. And, uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I saw some support on your uh, on your Twitter feed for gay people as well. Oh, absolutely! Being gay is is not a choice. It's it's uh, you are born the the way you the way you are, and so you should be free in the in the most free country in the world to to be who you are and pursue what you what you want to do and love who you uh, love, and uh, there shouldn't be any kind of discrimination against that. I believe that we are in a very bad part of our history. Me too. I don't think, I believe that we're so, we're so, this racial thing is so bad at the moment. I just don't understand how that, how that can be, but I'm very disappointed in in a lot of things I see and, and, uh, uh, the face mask disputes in the, in the department stores and just what have you. And, people cursing someone and telling them to go back where they they came from and all that it just seems so ridiculous to me as important a role as so many people uh, in the black community have made in our country and not just as musicians and singers, but, but as, but as real, you know, scientists and teachers and, and uh, politicians. And so, I want I want to see that openness again that we almost achieved uh, a number of years ago. I'd like to see that compassion for other people uh, again. It's just a tough time all the way around. And then, of course, for the pandemic to be on top of us like this and bringing us all to a, a stop and being so dangerous for us, that just adds another element that's really tough to deal with. And, you know, hey, we're going to have to get through it, and uh, and we will. We will. I look forward to hearing your new music when we do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to go to Muscle Shows. I'm going to cut some new things. Well, I had to put off my session in July, but we'll have to wait till, uh, till we're safe. Patience, really testing our patience, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it hasn't been so bad for me. I've been uh, quarantined with my wife, Gloria, and we've been married 52 years, and we've had some great times. And, 
And if we get frustrated, we're, at least we're together. So uh, I'm okay. Well, listen, I am so happy that you joined me today. I really appreciate it. I mean, looking at, you know, your track record as a recording artist is phenomenal. I think I, I didn't even realize till I really studied it, but also just you as a person, I just, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, very grateful that you, you would take time to talk to me. Man, anytime it's, it's all good. And thank you. Thank you, BJ Thomas. It was great talking to him, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we'll be back again next Wednesday with another interview on RPM 45.